Hey, thanks squad. Joel Sedeke's here. As you may know, from time to time, I get on the app called Discord and I do these apologetics AMAs where literally anybody can ask me any question about the Bible, Christian theology, or the implications of that theology for daily life. And in today's episode, which is part one of two of my most recent AMA, I answer the following questions. Was Jesus a false prophet because of what he says in Matthew 24? Are the end times coming soon? What's going on in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47? Were the early Christians communists? Would an atheist not be moral if he believed in the principle of consent and of not doing harm? And does 1 Timothy 6.18 say that Christians should be communists or just ready to share? Yes, that's right. Today, I tackle not just one, but two questions about communism. I also actually had one question come in that was very inappropriate for the purposes of this podcast. You know, most of you guys, the Think Squad who listen, you're grown adults, but I do have eighth graders and high school students that I teach apologetics to that also listen to this podcast, and I did not want to subject them to the full extent of this question. This is the question, basically it was, does God know what it's like to sin? And I had to edit some parts out, so it might be a little bit unclear what exactly is being asked, but you'll understand what the gist of the question was, and I hope how to answer it biblically, you know, from a Christian perspective that wants to treat the unbeliever as a person made in God's image, worthy of respect, but also someone who is clearly not operating out of a biblical worldview or by any kind of biblical standard of conduct. So hopefully you'll find that my answer is appropriate, biblical, and I hope it won't be too confusing for you as to what's being asked and what question I'm answering sort of in general, even if I did have to edit it. So I hope you enjoy this and I hope it's edifying. My goal here is to give you answers that you can use to answer similar challenges from a robustly biblical understanding of Christian doctrine and practice. So do I get everything right? I don't know. You judge based on scripture and your Christian reasoning. And as always, I hope it makes you think. My name is Joel Sedeckes. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach Bible at a Christian high school in Chicago. Impacted by my students' questions, I set out on a journey that brought me first to seminary to study apologetics and philosophy of religion, and then into pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I saw firsthand the struggle of believers confronted with questions of life that at first seemed impossible to answer, and the powerful confidence that came when they saw how God's Word gives the answers and guidance they needed. I had a dream to spread that message and equip more followers of Jesus, so my family and I joined Crew and launched the Think Institute. Now, I'm on a mission to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message by applying timeless biblical truths to current cultural challenges. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. 
Really quickly before we start, learning how to interpret all of life through the lens of God's word takes a lot of work, more than just one or two podcast episodes a week. If you have an interest in the intersection between the biblical worldview and biblical manhood and current events, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, consider joining our free online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and on Signal. There you can join hundreds of other Christ followers who are also on the same journey, and we trade apologetic stories and strategies, we discuss philosophy and theological questions. It's like a huge bull session around a bonfire in your backyard or at your favorite cigar lounge. So check out the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal. To reintroduce Joel, hold on. Uh, Joel Seven yes. Gates is a really cool Christian apologist, podcaster, uh, um, you know, educator, smart, all around smart guy. <laughs> He's actually very um, well mannered. And sorry, I don't know if you read the announcement. That was kind of a dig. Uh, at uh, the return of the notorious uh, Darth Dawkins. Oh, is he here? Yeah, he's on. He has a he's he has a room back on the server actually. So, mm. Yeah, it's very. He's a very interesting guy. Very so, interesting. Yes. Yeah. I don't know um, him personally, but I know by reputation I do. So some people may be warmed up with anti precept arguments. Got it. Ready, ready in the chamber. <laughs> but, so that's just a fair warning. Cool. All good. So with that being said, I'll go ahead. We'll just um, we'll just go ahead and start with the uh, some questions from the audience, and then we'll move to text questions. I'll make a room, by the way. Sorry, I'm, I'm lots of things happening. But. Thank you guys for waiting. Sorry about that. I don't know why my mic is not working, but I'm sure uh, I'm doing something wrong. But thanks for waiting. Oh yeah, no, this is going to be fine. All right, first um, we'll go with uh, Karn Liberated Eight. You're up. Be nice. I'm, I'm inviting you up. Hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Carden Liberated 8? Hey, good. You can just call me Carn if you'd like, for sure. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I'm a former Christian, former Reformed Baptist preacher. I guess before I ask you anything, I'd like to know where you're coming from, because that would change how I ask you, so okay. that I'm uh, speaking in a term that I think... Uh, like the question and answers we give each other will make sense contextually. It's like, sure. are, are you a specific denomination or how do you roll? Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, it's funny. I actually am a member of a Reformed Baptist church uh, in the Southern Baptist denomination. And I myself, I don't consider myself Reformed Baptist. I am a Calvinist, but I subscribe to New Covenant theology, which for most people puts me outside of the... I did too. Oh, you did? Really? Oh, for sure. Hell yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, we had a lot in common. Let's see how much we still have in common. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess um, to give you a 10-second rundown, I left the church over eschatology. Okay. I'm no longer a Christian. So that is what my questions would be centered around. Um, so I would ask you this question. Uh, do you have a current eschatology? Uh, yes, I do. And what would that be? I'm an amillennialist, so I believe that we are currently in the millennial reign of Christ. 
Yep, I did too. Cool. Gotcha. So, um, what I found, and I can, uh, to, to jumpstart, actually give more direct questions. Um, I can give you specific, we can play with specific verses, but before I do that, I like to just express the idea and see what you think about it. Um, if you have any just direct rebuttals to play with the idea, we can go to scripture if you like. Okay. Do you, do you have a, do you have a main central question? Yes. So considering that, uh, surrounding every prophecy, uh, that the apostles and Jesus made about 90% of the time that they made prophecies, they attached the time statement and that that time statement indicated a nearness to soonness mm-hmm. and at handness before certain people died. Yeah. Um, it's safe to conclude that everything that was spoke about was supposed to happen in the first century. You being a Christian, obviously you don't think that's the case. And so why do you believe that there's a yet future coming of Christ? Um, well, Matthew 24 comes to mind. Um, in Matthew 24, Jesus and his disciples are walking around the temple and the, the, the disciples say, wow, look at these beautiful stones. Look at this beautiful architecture. And Jesus says, do you see these stones? Do you see these buildings? A time is coming when not one of them will be left standing on another. And they say, well, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what Jesus does then is he launches into a, a, a discourse on the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And um, he, he expressly says it will not or it, it'll happen within the lifetime of this generation. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. Um, within 40 years, the temple was destroyed and the what we might call the old covenant era came to an end. But then at the end of Matthew 24, Jesus makes an interesting transition. He says, but of that day, now he's he's switching and he's returning to uh, he's he's turning to a discussion of his second coming. He says, of that day, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but only the father. And so Jesus was speaking to his, uh, with respect to his humanity at that time, uh, he he didn't know. Uh, but that is, he didn't say, well, that's not going to come. He just said, it's going to come, but we're not. I'm not going to tell you when right now. And there are other times when Jesus talks about it. He says, it'll be like the days of Noah. People will be marrying and giving giving in marriage. But um, yeah, the scripture is very clear that Jesus will come back. He will come back in the clouds. But the prophecies that Jesus made, as you said, that had a timestamp on them, those did occur in 70 AD. So Jesus is a true prophet. You should um, respectfully, you should repent of your sins and become a Christian. To your point, uh, you're stating that in verse 36, he's when he says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, you're saying that that day that he's speaking about in verse 36 is not the days he was speaking about in the previous verses? Yeah, that's correct, yes. So what does he mean by that day if he isn't referring to the day he was just speaking about? Well, he says, um, he says, so go back and read Matthew 24, I would say on your own time and read everything that Jesus said. It all came true in 70 prior to that, that we verse. We agree on that. What's that? We agree on that. Right, right, right. So, so in verse 36, he says, now concerning that day and hour, remember they were asking about two things, weren't they? Uh, they were, they asked about, um, 
They said, tell us when will these things happen and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They've got a muddled eschatology themselves. They assume the temple is so sacred, holy, and permanent that if it were to be destroyed, that would be the end of the world. So they say, they're they're lumping everything together. They say, tell us when will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's Matthew 24, 3. And Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. And then he goes on and for the next 30 or so verses, he explains expresses exactly what happened in 70 AD. But you can hear the transition. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days, and then he goes on, and, and, and you know, the, the days of Noah preceded a global cataclysm that wiped out everybody except for eight people. It was a global catastrophe. So, Jesus is clearly talking about something different than what he has been talking about, which was a localized destruction of the temple. So, yeah. So Jesus is a, a true prophet. He, you just have to, you just have to know what he's talking about. Does that answer your question? Uh, no. So um, okay. you're saying because he's talking about two things that yeah. they can't be together because he transitioned into but of that day mm -hmm. and. Just saying that there's two things in the text here doesn't prove a 2,000-year gap between the two things. If the first thing is uh, about to happen then, and he didn't make a big distinction that they were going to be separated by a very large amount of time, then what what would give you the president to, to go in there and inject that amount of time? Well, I'm not injecting it. I'm just – this is just exegesis of the text. Um when Jesus is talking about the oh, destruction on, of the, man. that's so unnecessary. Okay, do do you want to hear my answer? <laughs> You're what getting a little, Karen. I don't know if there's some hostility towards me as a Reformed Baptist, and that's what you used to be. But um, the, I I truly am trying to exposit the text. So maybe you know, hear me oh, out. Well. Okay, I, I'm happy to. Okay, you just keep going then. Go no, I, I'm, again, I'm not, definitely not trying to be disrespectful, but you asked for. You know, where, how do I inject that? I'm saying I'm not injecting it. I'm, I'm letting the text speak. So, well, and, and that's I okay. I frustration and you were speaking to it. So I was going to clarify why I'm being frustrated. But if you don't care and you want to proceed, you can. My frustration is because I don't want to hear your answer. I truly want to hear your answer. There's okay. just a little bit of victory claiming like, well, this is just the right way to exegete it. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you I, have to discuss why it is their case. You can't just claim that. That's right. That's what I'm trying to do. So, um, it's not, I mean, it's not victory claiming. I'm literally telling you what I think the text says. So, you know, we can be on the right side of that, wrong side of that. Um, and if you want me to give a disclaimer, like, this is my opinion or this is my belief. I mean, that's, that's implicit in everything I say. Everything I say is my belief. So just, just like everything that you say, that it's an invisible disclaimer on everything that we say. What I'm about to say is my belief. I mean, that just goes without saying. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't present it as, as true. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Uh, can I sit in just for a second? Yeah. So maybe uh, uh, Karn is asking for the reasons why. So as just to give a quick layman take here, I don't think it's I don't think I have uh, I'm going outside of bounds, like as far as the, the form goes, because Jesus clearly goes into a prophetic form. Did he hear? Mm -hmm. And in the Hebrew uh, tradition, like you see that in the prophetic um, in all the prophets, there's 
telescoping that happens. Actually, that's one of the re main reasons to explain that is because you see all the other prophets, um, um, you know, foretell a recent event and then talk about how that mirrors the great judgment or the yeah. restoration of all things. And isn't that the second coming of Jesus? You know, uh, I don't know. It's not out of bounds for me, but that's just my two cents. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. I think that's good. Um, sure. Jesus is definitely a Jewish prophet here, and it would make sense that we'd see parallels to how Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak as well. I think that's a great point. Um, but for me, the the main um, indicator that Jesus is talking about two different events is in verse 34, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus has also told them, uh, right in verse 32, he says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is at the door or he is near at the door. So um, earlier, Jesus even told them, uh, pray that it doesn't happen during winter. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to stand, then flee Jerusalem, run on the, on the housetops. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem there. Um, it doesn't make any sense to say, hey, um, the, the, the coming of the Messiah at the end of the age is going to be something you're going to have to flee Jerusalem for. You know, again, he's describing a localized event when he says flee Jerusalem. And he's giving them exactly when it's going to happen. It's going to happen within the next 40 years. That's a biblical generation. I mean, I guess that's debated, but that's my understanding of it. It's going to happen within 40 years. There's going to be certain signs, and they will know definitively when it's going to happen. And the kicker is, if you look historically, I believe Josephus, the historian, records this. The Jewish Christians, the so-called Nazarene sect, fled Jerusalem. They did exactly what Jesus said to do in 70 AD or 67 to 70 AD. And they were not killed when Titus the general invaded Jerusalem and, and destroyed it. Whereas the non-believing Jewish people followed a ton of uh, false messiahs, false false Christs, false prophets, and uh, they actually went to the center of the city, to the temple, and they were destroyed. And uh, it's very tragic. But um, but Jesus gives the, the Jewish Christians exact specifications as to when the event's going to happen. And then it would just be so bizarre for him to, to switch and to continue talking about the exact event he was talking about and, and then to say, yeah, but no one knows when it's going to happen, not even the sun. It's like, well, wait a minute, Jesus, you just told us when it's going to happen. Within 40 years, accompanied by these different events, and get out of Dodge when it happens. So it seems clear to me that Jesus is talking about two two distinct events. And he's he has to do this because the disciples – have a confused eschatology, and it's just like Ellipsis was saying, uh, there's telescoping going on. They're, they're looking into the future, and they're seeing two events that are separated by a vast, uh, a vast period of time. And I, I think if you want to know where is the vast period of time prophesied, well, that's in Revelation. That's the thousand years, which is a symbolic number me indicating a large, long, indeterminate period of time. So... Jesus does talk about the the gap. Um, I think he indicates it in Matthew 24, and I think he spells it out a little bit better, or I shouldn't say better, but a little more clearly in Revelation. hope that's helpful.
All right. No worries. Um, we'll we'll move that. We'll uh, we'll move on to another. So, question. Anybody else have a question for Joel about any uh, Bible issues or uh, questions about Christianity or the faith? I can uh, invite you back up if you want to, um, my dude. I forget his name. Carn uh, Liberated, I think it was. Oh, I think we have a text question also. Oh, are the end times coming soon? This is the text question. Oh no, yeah, this is a yeah, this is a text question. Is uh, from Ruby. Are the end times coming soon? Um, well, we're in them. Um, biblically speaking, I'm just writing down the question. Sorry. Um, biblically speaking, we are in the end times. Uh, the scripture is pretty clear that, um, we, we, uh, we are the ones upon whom the end of the age has come. Um, and sometimes in scripture, when it talks about the end times, it's talking about the end of the Jewish age which happened in 70 AD. Uh, but technically speaking, the last 2,000 years have, have been the end times. They've been the last days. Uh, the last days are the days of the church, and um, they'll be culminated by the coming of Jesus. What most people mean when they ask, are we in the end times or are the end times coming soon? They mean like, how soon is Jesus coming back? To that, I don't know. I don't have a definitive biblical answer. And in Matthew 24, even Jesus says he didn't know the time when he would come back. So I'm not going to put a date on it. I will say I personally believe that all the requirements have been met, that Jesus could technically come back right now, like instantly. Um, I don't think we should necessarily look for signs of his coming because, again, I think when Jesus gives signs, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And that already happened, you know, uh, 1930 years ago, give or take, or 40, 50 years ago. And so I I don't think that we'll be able to read the signs. I don't think we should look for a global uh, antichrist or the mark of the beast or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I think Jesus could come back tomorrow. Um, I'd be fine if he does. I think that'd be wonderful. I hope he does. But if he takes another 10,000 years, then obviously that's that's his prerogative. He can do that. Um, I will also say, this is just me personally, There there is a historical tradition that says the whole thing gets wrapped up in 7,000 years or maybe 6,000 years, like the six corresponding to the six days of creation. I like that theory, mostly because it means that Jesus is coming back very soon. Um, I don't know that you can conclusively prove that from scripture, but that is a belief of the early church, at least some members of the early church. So could be very soon, but it might not be. It might be um, not for several more millennia. It might be 6,000 years of the, of the church age. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Maybe four, 4K more, guys. Yeah, it um, might be. Well, uh, real, real quick, sorry. I, sorry, uh, I'd really be remiss if I didn't say this. Um, that being said, our personal end times are all coming very soon, definitely within the next 100 years. We're all going to die. And the most important question that any of us can be asking is, what's going to happen to me personally when I die? And death will come. Uh, Jesus Christ conquered death. He died for sinners on the cross. 
and he rose again. He's the only escape from death and everyone who trusts in him will be raised from death and will receive eternal life. And so um, I just want to encourage you, if you have not yet received Jesus Christ as Lord, as, as Savior, now would be a great time to do it because we don't personally know how much time we have left in our lives. Uh, it could all be over tonight, folks. Just wanted to add that. Yeah, very, very prudent word. Um, I have a qu- here, here. I have Bezos here asking a question. Ah, oh, Bezos. Uh, come on up. There we go. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Awesome, awesome. Just first thing, I heard you are. Are you from Massachusetts? No, I'm from Chicago. Uh, that could be why you're hearing a little something. Uh, okay, okay. I was just wondering. I was like, oh, we got a fellow Pats fan up here, but that's okay. No, sorry. Bears uh, fan. Um, the first question, if you don't mind, I just have like two or three follow-up questions. So the first one is nothing like major or big. Um, what are your thoughts on like gay rights or anything along, uh, around the rights of those? Oh, man, you got to be more specific. Like, uh, I'm, I'm against in, like, the marriage equality. Do you believe homosexuality is a sin? Uh, that was too specifically. Yes. Sodomy, homosexuality is sinful. Uh, homosexual temptation is not. It's not a sin to be tempted. Okay. Jesus was tempted. But I'm, I'm against – when people say marriage equality, they often mean the redefinition of marriage from being one man, one woman to – um, a different sort of arrangement, whether two men or or three men or any any other arrangement. Um, and so I'm yeah I'm against the redefinition of marriage. So God is omnipotent and omniscient, right? Correct. Okay, so what God know what? By the way, if so, keep in mind. So, uh, it, you can if you would, we don't want if somebody goes to a place you don't want to talk. Yeah, you have the ability to just. And to kick the person off if you want to. Yeah, that's fair. Um, oh, sorry. Right. It's a serious but, question. Okay. No, but if everybody's fair to keep going. Yeah. Just to let you know. Okay. Yeah. By the way, just to, just to let, let you know. Yeah, thanks. So, uh, Bezos, so there's a passage in Scripture where it talks about how uh, God is um, – it didn't even enter into his mind the sin that, uh, that was committed by the Israelites. And so – how, how do we how do we wrestle that with that? Because God is God is definitionally He's omniscient, but um, it's one thing to know of sin; it's another thing to know it experientially. And Bible says that God can't even look on evil. And so, um, where Scripture is silent, like w- w- what does it mean that God is omniscient? Uh, well, omniscient is a, a human philosophical term. The Bible says that God declares the end from the beginning. Uh, God knows all things. So. What we have to do is we have to accept the biblical testimony that the God who made us is um, is all-knowing, um, is love, and yet ex- does not experientially know sin, as though he's committed sin. God does not sin. And so if, if um, you know, homosexual temptation is something that, I, I don't know your own story, but, you know, is, if that's something that you're... Yeah, a lot of gay sex, yeah. Okay, okay, so... My my call to you would be, biblically speaking, um, the same it would be to to anyone else, uh, whether heterosexual, homosexual, uh, or otherwise, and that is that uh, sin does earn God's wrath. The wages of sin is death, and I don't want that for you, Bezos. And what God has done is God has provided real love by sending His Son Jesus, 
Jesus who never sinned, never never knew sin experientially, um, but who is also God in the flesh and who is capable of paying for our sins. And even though he never sinned, he died. And the Bible says that God had him become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so there is forgiveness for you. I don't I don't know if you expected to hear this or if you want to hear this, but uh, be, out of love for you, I, I want to tell you that there is forgiveness for your sin. Every sin can be washed away. And uh, you're not a greater sinner than God is a forgiver. God forgave all my sin. I'm probably a much bigger sinner than you. Um, not that it's a competition, but God's forgiven all my sin, past, present, and future. And he can do the same for you if you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, I was joking a little bit, but I, I do have a somewhat serious question now. Um, uh, Bezos, we, it, we really got to limit it to one question, man. I'm sorry. Can you come back around uh, in line? I, I guess I can fit in my schedule at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I just want to shout out to my uh, my brothers. Uh, trans right. It is okay to be gay. I am out no, there it's not. for you lefties who are just feeling oppressed. Leftism okay. is uh, All right. is wicked. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's fun. All right. Anybody? Okay. So I have a question in DMs. All right. Um. Uh. It's um. Uh, your general. Your. What are your thoughts? What's happening in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47? All right. Tell me that one more time. Sorry. Oh, yeah, just he wants uh, – you know, what, what do you think Acts 2, 44 through 47 is about? All right. Let's pull it up. Let's pull it up. And from the ask, uh, question asker, it's probably because uh, from a uh, – is this promoting a collectivist ideal oh, in any sort of it. way? Um or it might be from that perspective, but I don't Got want it. to color your response. Sure. Too much. Yeah. Um, what's going on there is exactly what it says. And I'll read it for us. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Very quickly. What we have here is the voluntary giving of a personal property, selling really a personal property to meet people's needs. Now, this is a voluntary, spirit-led, I, I believe, initiative and uh, has nothing to do with Marxism, which was inspired by Satan. I did a whole podcast on this with Paul Ken Gore from Grove City College. That sounds shocking to a lot of people because a lot of times people associate socialism and Marxism with compassion. It's the exact opposite of compassion. It's uh, state coercion and totally, totally outside the, the biblical boundaries of, of what the state is supposed to do. So the same Bible that says that the believers held everything in common also gives the parameters for what the state is allowed to do. Look at Romans 13, for example. And so this is not a Marxist passage. This is what happens day after day, week after week, still in today's world where believers meet one another needs, one another's needs. Uh, MediShare is a great example of this. Christians supporting each other's financial needs when it comes to uh, medical um, emergencies and, and needs, things like that. So not a Marxist passage. Marxism is very evil. Uh, it is uh, it is coercion. Well, and we even uh, later on in Acts, you've got the death of Ananias and Sapphira. 
And uh, you, I'll let you read that passage for yourself. But the Apostle Peter himself says that their property belongs to them and that even after they sold it, the money belonged to them. And so there is no, not even a hint of coercion here. Um, yeah. And Can you quickly recap that story for us, Joel? Oh, sure, sure. So um, this is at a time when people were selling their properties and bringing it and placing the money at the feet of the apostles so that the funds could be distributed to the Jerusalem saints, the Christians. And there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they wanted to make a name for themselves and they wanted to get credit. So what they did was they sold their property and they brought it to Peter and they lied to him and they said, well, we sold our property for this such and such amount, but, uh, but they were lying and they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Now, there's nothing sinful about keeping back the proceeds for themselves. Again, Peter reaffirms it's totally legitimate. It's within their, their, their rights. Private property is a very, very biblical idea. Their sin, though, was that they lied, not just to Peter, but to the Holy Spirit. And if – this is my own personal commentary on it. This, the church is at such a fragile infant stage that if that dishonesty were allowed to stand, it would actually undermine and fracture the very foundation of the church, and the church may not have survived. Um, and so what happens is they are struck dead by God, not by Peter, by the Holy Spirit himself for lying to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they went to hell, but it does say that they died. And uh and it's a it's a powerful testimony that you don't you just you don't mess with the Holy Spirit, you don't mess with God. Um and again, in that story, an auxiliary lesson is private property rights are real, giving is not to be coerced, and we shouldn't um you know, in a sense it's also a condemnation of Marxism because they were acting as though they were it was mandatory to give all the proceeds but it wasn't it's not mandatory that kind of giving is never mandatory um elsewhere the apostle paul says each one should give as he is determined in his heart god loves a cheerful giver so um the idea of coercion coercive giving in the new testament marxism that's totally foreign to christianity All right, excellent. Thank you so much for that answer, Joel. Um, we'll have a just one more text question, <clears throat> and then uh, a voice voice question. So, uh, this is from uh, Perpetualistic. Uh, how would one defend as an atheist that they aren't evil uh, because they don't follow the scriptures and uphold morality from a good action equals good outcome system in which the only rule the only rule are as the only rules are as follows uh the action of uh trans the action or transaction performed is consensual and no one is hurt so i guess they're saying how would one defend as an atheist um that they aren't evil because okay so he's saying that the argument is they're not evil uh, because they don't follow the scriptures because the basic tenets that like let's say an atheist would follow is that is consensual that every what's happening is consensual and that no one's hurt okay sure very briefly that's an arbitrary standard saying morality is based on consent or no one's being hurt 
if that's a standard that wasn't handed down from on high, then it just originates in the mind of the atheist and it can be successfully refuted simply by saying, so what? Because what do you do when someone says, no, actually consent is evil and harm is the greatest good? The atheist has no greater, deeper, more transcendent standard to appeal to. All he can say is, no, it's self-evidently false. To which the other person, the sadist, says, no, it's self-evidently true. And then you're just – um you're in a stalemate, a moral stalemate. We all know that moral, morality is transcendent. That's why we're always telling each other what to do. If we didn't think morality transcended our own minds, you know, we wouldn't vote. Voting is literally a way of saying, this is how I think the world ought to be and this candidate reflects my worldview better. So we know that morality is transcendent. The question is, what is morality rooted in? The Bible is very clear. The Bible has an answer. No one is good save God alone. God is the perfect standard of morality of goodness. So an atheist who says, well, no, it's all about consent. That's just an arbitrary statement by his own standard. The atheist does not have, according to him, a God to appeal to. He is his own God, definitionally. And um, the question is, why would anyone care about what an atheist thinks is right or wrong? And I don't mean that to be disrespectful to the atheist, because quite frankly, I do care. I, I think we're made in moral, uh, we're, we're made in the image of God, and that means we're moral beings. There's a reason why the atheist even has a moral standard. The question is, is it consistent? And even by his own standard, should anyone listen to it? And I submit, by his own standard, no one should care. We're just evolved apes. Who cares what an ape has to say about consent? <laughs> uh, no, no one would ever care about what an ape had to say about consent. Charles Darwin expressed the same thing. He said, why would anyone care about, uh, about the conclusions of an ape? Okay, if on the other hand, though, we are made in the image of God, then it makes sense that we have a moral sense. We ought to listen to that moral sense and we ought to take it all the way. We ought to take it all the way back to its conclusion, uh, back to its origin point, rather. We ought to see the reason why we, why we are moral beings is because of Genesis 127. We are made in the image of God. That has major implications for us, though, because that means that we don't we don't live up to God's standard. We don't even live up to our own standards. And so when the Bible condemns us as sinners, the Bible is really just agreeing with our own consciences. If we If we search our consciences, we'll see we don't even live up to our own standards. The question is then, what do we do with all this falling short that we do? The Bible says we all fall short in many ways. The Bible says that uh, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So our situation is very grim, very bleak, unless someone comes and rescues us. That is exactly what Jesus did. So Jesus is the Jesus is the silver bullet to arbitrary atheistic moral pseudo standards, because Jesus comes and and he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, and says, "No one comes to the Father except through me." Jesus is well known to be the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. And yet he also claimed that um, he came to lay his life down for a ransom for many. So if you like the moral teachings of Jesus, which how could you not, you've got to accept what he says about who he is, why he came. And he said, he said he came to die for sinners, rise again. That's exactly what he did. He called his shot. And um, the atheist needs to repent, turn from sin and, and trust in Jesus. Amen. That's great. Uh, great answer. Okay. Sleepy here has been waiting for a little bit, so yeah. I'll go ahead and invite him up. Come on up, Sleepy. Oh, never mind. All right. 
Um, okay. Let's go with he's. I guess he was sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm. I'm sorry. That was bad. No, it's right. great. As Why, a dad, I endorse Limerick. that joke. Thanks. Here, Limerin, come on up. You're next. Yo, this is such a minor issue, but I heard you mention. I think. First Timothy six eighteen, a while ago when you referenced uh, people who readily share and such in, in the Bible. Am I wrong on that? Was I, that not First Timothy six eighteen? No, I don't think so. Um, no, really? I didn't mention First Timothy six eighteen. It's a good verse. You want to ask a question about it? Oh, well, I have no idea. I was going to say if you are referring to that, just because the term readily sharing is the typical translation of the word chinanikos, uh, which means it means like communist is the thing. It, it means like chinanikos uh, is something that's held in common, this Greek translator David Bentley Hart writes. Uh, and then Chinoni Kos would be more like people who hold everything in common or people who hold things in common habitually, which we call communists. Like, how could uh, – I understand you may not like Marxism, but how could communism be bad? Well, Just real large. Yeah. So the word communist, I mean, uh, you're taking a term that has associations with Karl Marx. And I know Marx didn't invent communism. Um, in fact, in the Communist Manifesto, he talks about how a communist specter was already spreading over Europe. So communism was already an idea even when Marx wrote his Communist Manifesto. Uh, but what we can't do, and this is a very common error when people are trying to interpret the Bible, what people try to do is they take the common contemporary present meaning of a word and they try to read it back into scripture. We do this all the time, just like we try to read ourselves back into scripture. Um, but the word koinonikus uh, means willing to share, sociable, ready to communicate, beneficent, beneficent, excuse me. Um, and so the it's got that coin root, K-I-O-N, uh, which has to do with commonality. Um, that's very different than communism where everybody gives up their personal property rights and, uh, you know, lets, lets the administrative state handle their affairs or something like that. Or, or, uh, Karl Marx said that the, the center of his ethos was the death of private property. I mean, that is just so far from what we read in Acts 2 or in 1 Timothy 6. Again, in Acts 2, the apostle Peter expressly said that the, the financial boon that they got from selling their property belonged to them. That is just not Marxism. Uh, and it's not communism. Because again, we don't want to read the word communism back into scripture illegitimately. Does that mean that we shouldn't share self-sacrificially? No, absolutely we should. You you should, Limerick. I should too. But that's not, um, you know, it'd be very wrong to call that communism. Um, even if, let's say that someone came up with the word communism in like the 1400s, way before Marx. Okay, fine. But that word has very specific connotations with regard to economic theory and it just it just flies in the face of biblical economic theory so yeah we shouldn't read that retroactively back into the text well i disagree i mean you say that uh, it has that k-o-i-n root you're right um 
and you translate that as common, but what I think has happened is you're more familiar with the term chini, which means common, because no. that's chini Greek. It's the one used in the Bible. No, I'm thinking but of koinonia. The, koinonia. Fellowship. But that does not mean that, – that means like community. Yeah, fellowship, you, community, commonality. Mm-hmm. Sounds like someone who is a communalist. Because this is just the genitive on that word. It's like the people who belong to this practice of holding in common. Well, can I call those communists? I have an itch. So, but that's not, if we're going to just flatten the the text also down to meaning like economic commonality, that's also kind of weird to do that to the text as well, isn't it? And I don't think most communists would accept it as like reduced to the kind of economics you're probably talking about. But if you're talking about what the text is saying, right? Right. And what common what commonality do Christians have with one another? Many things. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them are financial, but many things. That's just my two cents. Yeah, communism is rooted in a oneist worldview that uh, essentially um, it 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 eliminates distinctions. There's a reason why communist societies always become totalitarian because they can't recognize distinctions between things. Um. Between the individual and the state, uh, they don't like barriers, like barriers between the individual and the state, like family, churches. Um, they don't like spheres of authority. Why? Because all the power has to be vested in the state because we're all one, all one. Um, the word koinonikos, uh, koinonikos, means – essentially it means generous, ready to distribute. It, it, is, it does not mean an abolition of private property. It just doesn't mean that. Well, what if I removed the upsilon of the second to last letter? Then you agree it would mean commonly held things, not people who hold things in common. No, I'm looking at I'm, I'm literally I'm looking at it in, in the lexicon. Koinonikos. I didn't not koinonikus. Koinonikos. It literally means to be generous or ready to distribute. Well, what do you think the coin the, the the generous of English referring to giving things is much different from the coin meaning communally holding things? Yeah, but don't commit the root. One is like this voluntary thing in a different context. And, I mean, <laughs> there's, me. there's probably some Greek word that means generous that's not that word. Oh, okay, like what? I have no idea, but it's not in the text. The word in the text is communist. No, it's not. I've, I've just explained it's why it's not. To that, but I mean, we, we can agree to disagree. I'll say okay. check out David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament because yeah. he goes on for paragraphs about this. Well, I, I read the original language, so that's that's all well and good. Thank you, but it doesn't mean communist. And well, we, it's just the cultural context that he gives, I mean. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I mean, take care, man. I, right. I like the response. I agree. It's a vibe. And I love the stuff you're doing. Hey. I'm not opposed to you. Thanks. So, take care, man. God bless you. See you, man. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of The Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedecase. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support The Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. (laughs) 